to hey everybody welcome to friday we have an awesome new show for you today eric newcomer is filling in for molly first we briefly talk about eric's transition to an individual independent indie journalist on substack and what that means for his incredible business uh, which is in the two comma club right now i can say that he breaks some news here and we break down eric's amazing scoop on stripe which is raising six billion at a 50 billion dollar valuation down from 96 billion and he's got the inside details then we talk about all the generative ai funding how crazy that is and breaking news breaking 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 news silicon valley bank has dropped 60 percent their stock price and uh there is the mm, i hate to say this there's a bit of a talk of people taking their deposits out of Silicon Valley Bank by some venture firms, and that could create a potential bank run. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, we'll unpack all of that. And uh, it's going to be a great show. So stick with us. This Week in Startups is brought to you by First Republic Bank, whose bankers understand the fast paced nature of your business and are ready to quickly and efficiently meet your firm's unique needs through all kinds of market cycles. Visit firstrepublic.com, member FDIC and equal housing lender. Embroker's Startup Insurance Program helps startups secure the most important types of insurance at a lower cost and with less hassle. Save up to 20% off traditional insurance today at embroker.com slash twist. While you're there, get an extra 10% off using offer code, you guessed it, twist. And lemon.io. Need to speed up your product development without draining your budget? Hire vetted engineers from Europe at Lemon.io. Go to Lemon.io slash twist to get 15% off for the first four weeks. All right, everybody. Happy Friday. Eric Newcomer is here. He's joining us to go through the news. You know Eric from his stint at the amazing publication known as The Information, Bloomberg, and his own Substack. Now you are part of the independent journalism movement. Newcomer, N-E-W-C-O-M-E-R.co. Newcomer.co is his sub stack. What do you charge? A hundred bucks a year, 10 bucks a month, something like that? It is now $199 okay. a year, $19 a month. So I have a discount. You can get it for $150 a year, okay. I think, if you go to newcomer.co right now. Oh, there you go. Get it for $150. Bucks. And yeah, uh, what is that like? Exactly. Two, you do two a week, three a week? How many drops is it? Yeah, so it's a... Uh, I've got like a weekly like podcast out that I just relaunch yes. that comes out once a week. And then I tend to publish once a week myself. And now I have like, like I just literally, while we were preparing for this, published a data post that we're starting to put out once a month. Right. So it's sort of, it's, it's a mix, you know, it's not like mm. sort of a morning brew thing where you're getting like an aggregation, like I'm doing reporting. And so then when I've got a scoop, I publish it. When I have mm. an interview, I publish it, but the podcast comes out Tuesday mornings. It's fascinating. I think it's a good place to start here in our discussions. A lot of news going on, and we'll get to your latest scoop. But it is uh, really interesting how independent journalists are becoming sustainable. Let me just ask it outright, um, without saying your salary, but the, the, the compensation you had at the information Bloomberg as you were working up as a journalist, versus running your own company similar more less <laughs> plus or minus 10 percent. where does it wind up i mean it was it was more you know i'm i'm at two years six months definitely you know a year out i was making more than i was at bloomberg now now it's becoming a business to the level i oh, think wow. some people in media discount you know i've hired a chief of staff i mean okay, if you think wow. about my business 
right now I have like three revenue lines basically, right? I have subscription, which for the first two years was all my revenue. And so that's some, some people pay, you know, 150 a year and then a small, I raised the price recently. Um, so you can sort of do the math. I have like 2,300. So that's like, wow, 400, you know, okay. top line Amazing. basically yeah. from subscription revenue. And now I'm doing sponsorships. I just had Vanta sponsor oh. my podcast. Fantastic. Seven episodes. Excellent. I won't say how much they paid, but you can sort of yeah. do math on that. And then I'm doing this Couple Cerebral of G's Valley. Per ad. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Doing this uh, more than that. Cerebral right. Valley AI conference, um, March 30th. Uh, and that's that's going to be huge. I mean, that's going to be, I said Look in at you. You got your the own media company. That's like more than a third of my revenue for this year, probably. So oh, it's huge. Fantastic. It's so been, you, you could hit a million dollars yeah. in year three or so of doing this, possibly. I think I think that'll happen. Yeah. Fantastic. Congratulations. Thank that's you. Awesome. <laughs> Feels good. Yeah, the it's, big question it's very is busy. You know, it's uh, I'm like ready to. Yeah. Well, it does change but, your mindset, right? right from right. being an employee and being like, blah, 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 you know, union leader, employee, <laughs> we need to fight management. <laughs> I, I, I Not that never, you were that, but yeah. you did see that with your right. compatriots, this like anti-management and sure. now you're the owner. Right. And now you're like, oh my God, running a business is hard. How does that change if it does at all? How you look at the people you're covering who are business creators, because now you're a business creator. And does it change how you look at businesses in some way? And business leaders? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot on just sort of, I don't know, how a company company operates and like focus. I mean, I think one thing that's funny to me is just, you know, I think as a reporter, I would look at all this sort of, I don't know, self-help leadership type advice and sort of <laughs> laugh at it. Yep. Especially for like business leaders, because it was like, you know, shouldn't you be worried about like, you know, I don't know, complex financial advice rather than just like how to maximize your schedule. But now that I'm like running a business on my own and just like very busy, it's like, oh, actually like the optimization of like my time and my own ability to like yep. output work is actually like probably the most important lever in my business yep. overall. And so then I have much more appreciation for why you just sort of go back to the fundamentals of like, oh, how do I, how do I make sure I'm as productive as I, as I need to be and all that. Um, the other so thing I, I have see, more empathy for that. You have more empathy too. Yeah, that's good. I think this is going to, I think the Substack podcast revolution, the, let's call it independent journalists, because some of them are using other platforms, Patreon, this existed before Substack, and they're competing nicely, I think. And then there's people who are now creating uh, SaaS-based um, solutions that are maybe not the 10% that Substack takes. Substack takes 10% plus the 3% credit card, or the 3% is blended into the 10 no, Substack takes 10% and then yeah, Stripe facilitates the actual payments and takes like- Yeah, so yeah, so when you start getting to big numbers right now, 40K right. or whatever, 50K, you know, four or $5,000 for your hosting company is not outrageous, but you hit a million, yeah, you start thinking 100K, uh, maybe right. you start look at other options. But a lot of my, re like I'm saying, a lot of the revenue is conference and right. then sponsorships. I would say, I mean, right now, I think Substack is super worth the money. I mean, they yeah. drive, I mean, you, you set up a Substack, right? I mean, I think the recommendation I, yeah. feature is driving a lot of growth for me still. Oh, and the recommendations are working. Yeah. yeah. And that's why the free list is, you know, I have more than 50,000 free subscribers and that's super That's valuable. the crazy thing is I think they figured out the referral system. And so I've been getting all these free, which, you know, if you just use a generic mail provider, you're not getting that. 
And then I looked at it and I was like, I have a bunch of lists that are infrequent. Founder University has a list, the accelerator has a list, the fund has a list, the podcast has a list. I have a personal list and I re we really don't use them that often, maybe once every couple of months. So we're paying some SaaS fee to manage those, which is fine, but they're infrequent use. It's not like we're some retailer, I don't want to say spamming, but blasting all the right. time about discount codes. So I was like, wait, it's free to use Substack if you're not charging. Right. And you, I'm getting free subscribers. So it was just a no brainer. I just parked them over there. I had them parked at review too uh, on Twitter. And that was great. But I guess they're deprecating it. So, um, you know, I like the idea of like the Twitter bio having the one click. That was right. a really cool innovation, but that went away. I, I, like, I just like the idea that you can get some free subs. Um, cool. But yeah, if they keep it to 10%, it's a low enough take rate that I think they're going to balance like, oh, I'm getting free subscribers and some convert. The referral system you might just right. be like you know what that's a that's a fine vig to pay all right it's definitely I mean, good well just the last thing i'll say i yeah. mean you know the ankler and then also barry weiss have started yep. to build publications on them i'd be interested to know what the if the take rate's the same on those because oh if they yeah, negotiated a different rate because if you start building an actual business you know i feel like like the dynamics must be different but i'm not sure yeah i mean it's pretty portable so i think the the, the point at which you're going to have to think about this, and maybe uh, Casey has to think about this, Newton, uh, right? Casey Newton, yeah. Like yep. so, some of those folks, when they hit a million, if they have 5,000, 10,000 subs, which you'll hit at some point, I think when you hit a million dollars and you're paying 100,000, 10,000 a month, you'll start thinking, I could hire somebody uh, full-time and use some of these other platforms, and maybe that makes more sense. Uh, and right. I think that's why Sam Harris was on Patreon for a while. He moved off of it. And he didn't have to pay the VIG and he didn't have to worry about having somebody turn him right. off. Although Substack seems pretty committed to freedom of speech. In fact, <laughs> they might be a little. Yeah. This Week in Startups is supported by First Republic Bank. Tomorrow's innovators need funding today. And no one knows that better than private equity and venture capital firms. First Republic bankers understand the fast-paced nature of your business and are ready to quickly and efficiently meet your firm's unique needs through all market cycles. Best of all, you'll be partnered with an experienced banker who will serve as your single point of contact. That means you can reach out directly by phone, email, or First Republic secure app. When you're too busy to leave the office, they'll even come to you. Experience the difference a true banking partnership can make Visit firstrepublic.com today to learn more. That's firstrepublic.com, member FDIC and equal housing lender. Mario at The Generalist just moved back to Substack, which was interesting oh. after going off. I mean, the you know, ease is something people undervalue. Sometimes it's just like, this works, like worry about the other parts of your business. Um, yes. And that's certainly valuable. That's where take rate as a, as a general concept you have to provide more value than you're taking. That's why I think Apple is in crosshairs for people. Hey, 30% is too big of a take rate. Right. People are like, this isn't fair. We're not going to offer Spotify or, or some Epic Games Fortnite. You can't buy stuff, right? You got to go direct to the website to buy it. It's just too large of a take rate. Now, if it was 10%, those people would be like, yeah, okay. Right? Uh, right. Whereas a small person might be like, you know, com.com or Fitbod, some other apps we've invested in. They're like, yeah, happy to pay it. Thanks for featuring us once in a while. Totally. Um, I do also like Substack has an app. I know it's a little controversial because people can experience your newsletter without the email, I guess. Right. Um, 
I don't, I don't know if that's, I, I think Casey was the one who pointed that out. Like, I don't want to be bundled. It, it doesn't worry me as much. I mean, I think anything to make the reader experience better. <laughs> and right now we're all very dependent on like Gmail, right? You know, like Gmail filtering. I don't know. It's, uh, I'm happy for, you know, my readers to be able to find the newsletter however they want. Uh, I thought the chat was interesting. Did you use the chat feature yet? I haven't, you know, with Casey, I am actually in a discord group. That, yes. You know, I joined that uh, as well. I forgot the name of it, but I just didn't side like channel. My, my yeah. community isn't very active. I would not call it. I think Casey's has been more of a su- success. Mine. I don't know. I haven't really invested in building the community, but then I didn't, I didn't want to play around with the chat feature. You know, the pro I, I do, I put, I turned the chat feature on and it was kind of interesting that, Dozens of people showed up to say hi. Right. I thought it was interesting. I think it's got potential, like to turn a mailing list into a community is a kind of a clever idea. Right. Um, and I think that over time, people will like that if there's a purpose. But the, I think what's going to happen with Substack over time is you have the fear of people unsubscribing because the newsletter is not intelligent enough or not insightful enough. That is a fear that I think drives performance, right? Every time you hit that sand key. Right. And I was just reading this like business insider, you know, super link baby, obviously. Um, and I was just admonishing a writer over there. I was like, they were dunking on Sequoia's fun performance. And I was like, oh, have yeah, you yeah. not heard of the J curve? Like, the, I, and I told him, I was like, you look dumb. Like, and he's like, well, I did put in here that these are young funds. I was like, yeah, but look at the headline. Look at the tenor of the story. You're obviously dunking on them and saying like, oh, mighty Sequoia is like doing poorly. I was like, you kind of look dumb. I'll be totally honest. You look uninformed. And you look link baiting. Right. That's not a good look. And it's like, but I guess it gets clicked, so it works. But if you were to do that in an email newsletter, you might have three people unsubscribe, paid subscribers. Like, oh, this person's dumb. Speak to that. Like you're. Yeah, I'm, and I'm not speaking to that story specifically. I'm not dug that into story it. specifically. I mean, it seemed what I'm I mean, describing is yeah. challenged with their public holdings. I don't know enough about the new funds. Well, everybody um, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like. The, the value of the newsletter is that every piece is delivered to your readers' inboxes as equal to the prior pieces, right? At Bloomberg, it really felt like even though we had a big audience, stories were sort of fighting for a spot on the homepage or on social to be valuable. Whereas for the newsletter, every piece matters. And therefore, I'm much more apprehensive about sending a piece that feels unusually weak because everybody's going to see it. And it's going to be embarrassing. Yeah. I think that's. Uh, a very healthy dynamic. I think this is like, you know, we had a talk on dead count, dead cat bounce, which is the previous name of <laughs> your podcast. Cat, just dead cat, the old name. Yeah, exactly. The old name, the dark dead cat bounce <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I mean, that's what you're talking about. The dead cat bounces is a finance no, term. But like. that, that is part of what it references, but it actually references a conversation between Mark Andreessen and Mark Zuckerberg, oh. where Mar- Mark Andreessen text- texted, yeah, no, no, no. It's Spycraft. Mark Andreessen texted Zuck and said, the cat's in the bag, the bag's in the river, which is some really like obscure spy reference. And then Zuck replies back, does that mean the cat's dead? <laughs> and so we just thought it was funny. It came out in a lawsuit. It has to do with Andreessen helping Zuck get like more founder control over Facebook. And so, yeah, that's that, a very, that was dead cat. I felt like that was <laughs> either like mark andreessen's finest moment or worst <laughs> i couldn't figure it out i was like wow this dude is really on the side of founders he's negotiating against the other board members 
to covertly right. coach Mark on how to manipulate totally yeah. the comp committee to let him go become a senator or something and still maintain control of the company. I, I just I just love it. You know, I'm all about insiders and like the, yes. how Silicon Valley works based on actual human beings. Like I just yep. have to read Hoffman for my new podcast and like that's like Congrats. a theme. And so I feel like that 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 whole Mark Andreessen, Mark Zuckerberg saga is just funny to me. It's just like, oh, the people, you know, their machinations are really deciding, you know, who controls like one of the, you know, 10 biggest companies in the world. And, and yeah, so, exactly. I love it. Um, all right. Well, there's a little preamble for you folks. Okay. Now you just published on uh, newcomer.co. Go subscribe everybody. 150 bucks. Uh, you published um, a scoop. Scoop. <laughs> on Stripe. So uh, tell us what's the latest on Stripe. Yeah, you know, so Stripe has been raising this round and I got a source and then another source that said Stripe was r- raising actually $6 billion. Um, big number. Yeah, big, like huge. Uh, OpenAI maybe uh, has numbed us a little bit because their deal with Microsoft is 10. But I mean, $6 billion for a startup to raise is humongous, Bonkers. basically. That's, Uber that's is the only the one largest. that I can think of this. Right, certainly. Uber I is think the it's only one. Be yeah. Top three at least. Um, For sure. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, amazing. And what's, and it's at a $50 billion valuation down from 96, which had been the peak. Cut in half. But this is not money for Stripe to use to run its business. All the money is basically going to be used to help resolve this expiring restricted stock unit problem that Stripe has had, right? It granted these options. And since Stripe hasn't gone public, some of the options are going to expire for early employees. So they need to help those employees deal with the options, pay the tax bill. The tax bill might be about like $3.5 billion. And then the remainder of the $6 billion will mostly be used as an actual tender offer, basically, to buy the shares and let some employees and ex-employees uh, oh, nice. you know, see some money. So the tender offer means that Thrive Capital, General Catalyst, A16Z, Founders Fund, who are reportedly participating in the round, they'll buy some shares from those employees. So they'll own some common shares. This is exactly what Masayoshi-san did uh, with Uber. Bought, uh, put in some shares at a very high valuation for preferred. This doesn't seem to be happening here, but or maybe it will. And then also did the secondary. So I'm guessing some percentage of this is at a preferred price and some of it's buying that secondary. Or the company's buying back blended. the secondary. I think, I mean, uh, yeah, some of the details... It's not clear, you know. Not yet. It probably could even be negotiated right now, yeah. Um, I mean, Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan have been sort of steering Stripe through this, and some of the Goldman private wealth clients are also investing. Well, their revenue has slowed a bit over there, um, but they're still growing. um, 85% year over year for their net revenue. Um, Well, that was 21 to 22, net revenue grew 85%. But in, yeah, what, what's is are they growing fast or are they growing slow? <laughs> well, I think it's you know it's the combination. The, the information reported that they lost some five hundred million dollars last year, which for okay. a company that I think had bragged about sort of you know how profitable it was was sort of worrying. It's the gross revenue grew twenty seven percent last year to fourteen point three billion, um, and yeah, I think the year before it had grown sort of much more than that. So it was sort of a shocking. Slow down because obviously, you know, what if you're investing at 50 billion 
for a company that you don't know when it's going to go public and you, you're a venture firm, so you want to see big returns, you're hoping for a $100, $150 billion company to come out of this, in which case you, know, you need to see continued growth and, and sort of profitability. And, and you know, I think in particular, you know, Adyen is this public company that Stripe gets compared to a lot. And Stripe had just let its headcount balloon. Um, mm. And so then if you looked at you know, revenue to headcount, I think in particular, Stripe looked more challenged. And so they, they cut yep. 14% of the employees in November. Yeah, uh, 4,000 to 8,000 employees from 2021 to 2022. Right. I mean, that's a lot of headcount to add. And uh, they did the riff right. and cut 1,100 employees. I've been dealing with business insurance for three decades. I am on the board of a bunch of companies. I watch people who don't have insurance get themselves into trouble all the time. Switching providers has always been a nightmare. It's too expensive, takes too much time, and often it doesn't even guarantee better coverage. But now you can make switching radically simple with Embroker. Yes, Embroker is the perfect destination for industry-tailored commercial insurance. It's business insurance specifically for startups. Embroker's single application helps startups get four quotes, one, two, three, four, for four lines of coverage in just 15 minutes. They connect you with one of their expert brokers for unmatched service that goes beyond your policy. And listen, Embroker is such an amazing product. I use it. A lot of my startups use it. It's so easy to use. So try Embroker today with code TWIST and get 10% off their startup package at Embroker.com slash twist. That's E-M-B-R-O-K-E-R.com slash T-W-I-S-T. And use the code TWIST to get that 10% off. It's meaningful. Every dollar counts right now. We love you, Embroker. Thank you so much for supporting this podcast for so many years. What do you think generally, uh, what's the back channel? I mean, we talk about it a lot on this week's startups and all in about the layoffs. What's the, you know, and you kind of, I think, straddle, as we talked about at the top of the show, say the uh, maybe antagonistic uh, anti-tech press, the, you know, Substack insider kind of new s- state of journalism. Yeah. What is the actual truth to how these uh, layoffs are being perceived uh, by the rank and file in Silicon Valley? Do they understand it? Are they upset about it? What, what's the, are people in a I mean, culture sort of, of fear now uh, and scared for their jobs? I mean, I feel like, you know, obviously, Everybody has a different opinion. I think there are some people that I've seen almost like lampooned for they get laid off and then they still write some, you know, tribute to their years there and sort of totally understand it, sort of the the capitalists. And then I think you see sort of people who work at Google and come to see it as sort of like a birthright. And then as soon as they have, you know, people leave there, it's like, how could they do this? You know, so there's clearly a range of opinions. I mean, personally, yeah, I'm. I, I do think layoffs are part of are part of business. Um, yep. And you know some of these companies just hired so much that the companies need to be able to lay people off. It's not, mm-hmm. and there there's certainly an, there was an amount of you know entitlement among some of these tech employees that they should be able to earn you know hundreds of thousands of dollars a year forever. Yep. And I think the Facebook case in particular, which I'm sure I think you guys have talked about on all in. I mean, it's just. You know, managers managing managers managing managers or whatever. That was Zuckerberg's about. great quote. Right, right. And he's exactly. like, "Yeah, this has got to stop, and we're going to consolidate down. And if you want to be a manager, maybe leave." Right, and and I mean, yeah, I don't think anybody wants to work for a company where managers are managing. You know, it's just like at some point, productive people want to work at companies where 
they're yeah. surrounded by people who feel like they're doing the work. I my you know, I've come to the conclusion that it takes two to tango. I think Google created this culture of entitlement because they had the money printing machine. I think Silicon Valley copied it because they had no choice because it was an arms race and there was a talent uh you know war going on and google explicitly led that talent war by saying you know what we'll hire people to let them hang out on the roof and drink <laughs> right. pina coladas i know well, like in silicon valley in huli right well we'll hire you for you to give up on your dreams so you won't yes. compete with us you know exactly like, that um, was th that was the explicit strategy eric as vocalized to me from the top of the company and you know people other people copied it but they didn't have the money printing machine. Right. So then that gets you into a bit of a trap. People basically are going really fast and they just went flying off the cliff. Right. And, and, and I mean, you can see why people are upset if they do give up on their dreams. They think they're going to get this yeah. money year after year. You, you sort of set a norm and then people expect it. And, it, you know, it's a hassle. If you're pretty far along on your career to, to go find another job. So, there's, you know, there, I wonder what I happens to this group of people let's say, who didn't have jobs that were essential, who now find themselves uh, having maybe gotten paid three times what they were getting paid maybe five years earlier, right? So right. they were working in marketing or sales or PR, let's PM design, let's call it a non highly technical AI developer or top sales executive position where like, they're super valuable and coveted even to this day. And they got to 400,000, 500,000 in blended comp between stock and base. Right. And they started their career just five, six years ago at 100. Have they, did they hit peak salary compensation for their careers? They're getting laid off at 35, 40 years old. Right. I mean, that's, that's a possibility. Yeah. I mean, hard to know, right? I just think that's, and then I think there's two things that are headwinds now for talent. Um, one is everybody insisted on continuing remote work. You know what happens when you insist on remote work and you're highly paid? Uh, your managers learn what your output is. Right. Because th they have to figure out your output because they can't actually see you doing work. They don't see you at a desk. They can't manage by like policing the prison yard, you know, like walking around the open workspace and making sure you're there early and you stay late, which is how managers kind of manage managers. They would just look at literally the number of cars in the uh, in the parking lot and the badge is coming in out. Well, now your manager's got to evolve. They got to look at your commits, your code commits. They got to look at your sales. They got to look at what you wrote in your end of day report in Slack, what you said in the standup you were going to get done and what you actually got done. And then they put it against something in Canada or Sao Paulo or Singapore. And they're like, wait a second. We have offices around the world and we're paying people different amounts of money around the world. and I could hire five people for the cost of this person. I don't know. Re remote can and be helpful AI. to the employee. And then AI. Yeah, <laughs> AI. But remotes can remote can be helpful to the employee too. I mean, there's so much, so much wasted time at the office. Was I agree. Just you know, I mean, I love Bloomberg, but you you just feel productive talking to your colleague. You know, like hearing their problems, whatever. But it it didn't necessarily get you anywhere towards work that would actually like. Mm. increase bloomberg's revenues you know what i mean so if you cut out some of that your employees are i don't know happier maybe more productive i feel like nobody likes to commute and everybody likes to live in low-cost right. places i think it just right. i think what's happening is we're going through a great reset of salaries and compensation uh so this great reset in tech and business and media 
is, you know, going to be impacted by two major forces, remote work, global remote workforces. So I think if you were highly paid in the United States and lowly, play, lowly paid in Manila, I'm just right. thinking of like the biggest delta, right? <laughs> a writer in New York, a writer in Manila, a, sa totally. a, a sales development rep in Manila, a sales development rep in, you know, Los Angeles or New York or San Francisco. So there's a huge delta in, in your salary. I think one person's salary goes up massively, one's comes down modestly or moderate, moderately. Right. And so that like global price, yeah, you want to work at home? Uh, we don't care if you're in Hawaii or you're in Manila, but this is what we pay for work. And then when AI starts doing the work, I think that's the other thing. I don't know what your thoughts are now of how much this is applicable, but you and I are writers. Right. And like you ask ChatGPT in this nascent version to make you a punch list of what should be on a marketing program like you can do in notion now it's built in and you're like make me a checklist of what i should do in a marketing plan and it's like okay that's a pretty good starting point right well you know i was preparing for my interview with reed hoffman you know the linkedin co-founder who just stepped off the open ai board and so i was talking to chat gbt and like asking it for question advice i thought on the one hand it was a very useful tool to sort of think through things right it knew generally, like, this is somebody who thinks about blitzscaling. He was at Microsoft. Like, it, it, it's smart enough. Like, you could ask the questions and not look like an idiot. On the mm -hmm. other hand, you know, I was talking to it. I was like, I was trying to tell ChatGPT, like, have you ever watched Joe Rogan? Or I could have said, you know, have you, have you seen All In? Like, people don't just, like, ask, like, straight questions. You know what I mean? You, yes. you like, sometimes you give a rant and then you ask a question. Sometimes you ask short and sweet. Sometimes you're like annoying, you know, you ask a range of different types of questions and at least I wasn't able to evoke from it, um, you know, the questions that I wanted. Now, I do think, you know, some of that is just like question, you know, there's going to be all this sort of human language engineering of the machines to get out mm. the output you want. You know what I mean? Right. Um, but, but yeah, I, 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 def I think it's going to be very hard to predict which jobs actually get replaced because people want to say, you know, other people's jobs get replaced, not mine. You know, everybody sees, I, I don't yes. know. It's hard to predict. Like, uh, this is hilarious while we're talking just to show you the power of like this technology in its most early state, I decided to, uh, type in uh, doing an interview with, um, I, the prompt I gave was, what question should I ask Reed Hoffman on a podcast? Ask questions in the voice of Joe Rogan. Oh. He wrote, all right, folks, we got a legend. We got a legendary Silicon Valley entrepreneur and investor in the house today. Correct. <laughs> He's both. Reed Hoffman, exclamation point. Reed, great to have you on the show. <laughs> Pretty nice. Let's start with your journey. You had an incredible career as an entrepreneur and investor. Can you walk us through your journey, how you got started and some of the biggest challenges you faced along the way? I mean... That's it's a generic, good, like, if you were like a college... There's no spice, yeah. No spice, but if you were a college kid learning how to do... Sure. ...a podcast, they would be like, yeah, ask them about their career. You co-founded right. LinkedIn. Okay, getting more specific is now the world's professional... What is the original inspiration behind LinkedIn? Pretty good question. Original inspiration question. Uh, but they're very... Old, uh, yeah, yeah. They're generic. Oregon, it could. Yeah, they're very generic. Um, the generic today. But right. if you said, you know, if... Um, I think the interesting thing is you're going to be able to say those questions are pretty generic can we get right something a little more spicy and it's going to be like okay spice it oh, up yeah. i mean i'm extremely bullish uh, to be clear yeah. i i think this is huge i mean it's 
regular people on the street. I feel like I go to the gym locker room. People are talking about it. You know, like there are lots of things, crypto or whatever, that Silicon Valley gets itself hyped up about that nobody else cares about. Yeah. This is something. I mean, my fiance uses it just like as not, you know, to think about what emails she should send. You know, it's. I think it's already very useful. I'm trying to figure out what's more shocking that she does it for email or that you have a fiance. Hey, <laughs> welcome to the all in pod. <laughs> We're gonna break. I feel like I could do a pod where I break the chops a little bit. Um, yeah, my favorite is we've gotten to the point in which and look at these like this gave me like more questions than it kept going. I didn't ask it to keep going, but it just kept going. Yeah. What advice would you give aspiring entrepreneurs who are just starting out? That's a good one. Uh, you're involved in a number of philanthropic endeavors, including Black Lives Matter movement and the fight against climate change. Tell us more about your philanthropic work. It's not bad. I, uh, I think it's very safe. Like I, it's this very is where safe. I'm almost where with the, you know, Elons of the world or whatever. Like, I feel like I worry that it's just like, I don't, I already hate bland corporate speak with humans. Like, I don't want this AI machine to just like, like there's no spice in that. <laughs> like what? Yeah, I, I just feel Give like it's very boring. And the unlock, you know? right? I mean, right. If, if ChatGPT and if Microsoft is making ChatGPT safe for that use case, totally understandable. Right. Uh, but then again, like search engines have like filled with porn and hate speech and every possible corner. So if it is being compared to search, there should be a safe search filter at some point where you say, "Hey, let this thing rip." I want right. to ask it. I don't care about uh, safe words, racism, sex, whatever isms. I don't care about filtering this. I don't care if it's off color. Let it make jokes in the style of whoever's the most offensive, right? Like, to tell me, me some offensive me, jokes. Yeah. I, on the one hand, I'm supportive of, you know, more unrestrained. On the other hand, I do just worry, and I don't know what the solution is to this. They're very psychologically persuasive. You know, like the whole episode mm. with like Sydney and Bing that, you know, Kevin Roos, New York Times. Yeah. And, uh, Ben Thompson wrote about like those are smart people. Like I feel like there's a lot of pull to it. You know, it, yes. I think we're very close to a situation where people take these chatbots seriously. I mean, that was the whole Lambda encounter with that Google engineer. And so then, if you you know have people interacting with super dark bots, they can you know be led into dangerous places. I think that's what. Okay, imagine this. You got an idea for a great tech startup and you think it's going to change the world, but you got a problem. You just don't have the engineers that you need to make it come true. Why? Well, it's obvious. It's hard to find engineers. There's a lot of competition. And hey, you're trying to keep your burn rate low. You need to conserve cash. Now, imagine you had a partner who could provide you with more than 1,000 on-demand developers, right? As many as you need. And these developers were all vetted, experienced, result-oriented, and they were incredibly passionate about helping you grow your startup. And what if they charged, you know, competitive rates, things that you could afford? Does this sound too good to be true? Well, let me introduce you to Lemon.io. Startups choose Lemon.io because they only offer hand-picked developers with three or more years of experience and who have strong portfolios. In fact, only 1% of candidates who apply to work with Lemon.io get in. A couple of our launch founders have worked with Lemon.io and they had an amazing experience. And listen, I have used outsourced full-time teams for decades, whether it was way back at Weblogs Inc., Mahalo, onto inside.com, at launch, 
This is the way to do it. Go to lemon.io slash twist and find your perfect developer or tech team. And you can do that in 48 hours or less. And twist listeners get 15% off for the first four weeks. Stop burning money, hire developers smarter, visit lemon.io slash twist. I think what we have to understand is we've passed the Turing test in many cases. Right. And we've crossed the uncanny valley. So the Turing test by Alan Turing in 1950, like if you were to ask, you know, the computer or a human to give you an answer to a question, would you be able to tell the difference? Like, right. you can't tell the difference here. That that just that one I did about the questions. If I asked an intern or a producer to come up with questions and they came back with that, I'd be like, okay, good start. Good start. Right. You know, right. y- you could totally fool me or, or anybody. Um, unless you had like, unless it makes mistakes, which it seems to do pretty frequently. And uh, the tone passes the uncanny valley because it that did feel like a little bit like joe rogan-esque without the spice um so a lot of this leads to massive funding let's talk a little bit about this deluge of funding yeah uh and, and what you're seeing out there right i mean open ai is obviously sort of the elephant in the room and it's all open ai has an extremely complex structure you know it's sort of a non-profit it's sort of for-profit yeah. Uh, you know, Microsoft has a, a deal with them that we don't totally know. So I, I just say that to say, okay, it's possible, you know, OpenAI is the Facebook of social, but all these venture capitalists know that they didn't get the Facebook of social and now so they're off looking for the social trend. So there's a question of which other companies will be able to, to really make a ton of money off this or be as valuable as OpenAI. I think some of the key contenders right now are, you know, other people building large language models. So Anthropic, you know, the information out of story that they're raising $700 million in a round wow. led by uh, Spark. I think they said the valuation was like 4.1. So that Anthropic wow. is X, you know, open AI people. So they would be more of a direct competitor. Similarly, I've reported on this company, Character AI, which is sort of a mix of building its own large language models. And then also, you know, uh, building these kooky sort of character things, you know, um, but there's images, tons. Right, yeah. And right. so that's yeah. really interesting. Um, if you were to look at those first two, these are going to have overlap already. They're massively funded. There's a limited amount of talent in the space. I hear AI developers go for low single digit millions a year. That's, uh, you know, the good ones, one, two, three, four million a year. That's what right. you're hearing. Total comp, cash in. I, I, I don't know. That's a good, I should do a story on sort of the individual comp. And I also want to do a story on just like, I feel like there are certain key researchers that make so many of these, com- you know, these companies are relevant if they have them and, and not if they don't. So it's definitely, it's like basketball. I mean, it's like a star driven industry at the moment. It is today. Brad Gerstner said on the All In Pod last week when he sat in for Freeberg that, yeah, Google was paying somebody 4 million in stock and hmm. cash. So that makes sense if you got a, whatever trillion dollar company you give a couple million dollars in equity right. and this is the future of the company or you have to protect it from potential um you know um competitors it, you got to protect the kingdom so that's two and that's both of them are at one's at four billion one's at a billion both of them hundreds of millions of dollars what else has been invested in well you stability's out there raising around right, right now i think uh might have been fortune said they were looking for four billion um, perplexity that was another one yeah that was i scoop reported that. on NEA, oh you did okay 
I scooped it NEA was doing it. And then uh, I think Insider followed up with some of the details. I mean, there are a ton, you know, <laughs> I just published yeah. like a market map. So it depends, you uh, know, there, there are a lot that Battery Ventures had put together. I mean, basically it depends, you know, there are the big players who are doing the models and then there are companies, you know, you've probably heard of Jasper, which is yep. sort of sitting on top of some of the models and saying, how can we use the language prompts to really make it useful in particular mm. cases? I think there's a, their rival is like this company writer. Uh, you know, I'm interviewing uh, the Replit CEO and uh, Hugging Face CEO there at uh, at my conference on March 30th. You know, there are just there's so many. I, the runway runway is this company that was used in everything, everywhere, all at once. Are you following that? Mm. You, have you seen that movie? I have seen it. Yeah. Yeah. So but- like, you know, it was this tiny design team. And they they used runways like video production tools, which oh. use generative AI to to build some of the stuff. Extraordinary, that's wild. Yeah, yeah. It, it does seem to me uh, we are now going to have twenty five well funded <laughs> competitors in each of these spaces. Right, their products are going to be non differentiated, and it's going to be a race to the bottom in terms <laughs> of the cost right. per API use. So, I think. This is like the Uber versus Lyft versus DoorDash versus Postmates kind of battle where VCs are now going to be funding these services at below cost because these things do take a lot of servers. Right. And ChatGPT seems to have made their API. They, 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 my, I read that they made the cost like 10x cheaper. So they are just undercutting the entire market. I, somebody's going to make this API just free. As right. part of like some, you know, long-term play to build maybe the, the language model. But how do you think yeah. this all shapes out if there are 25, 50 people making, you know, AI startups for copywriting and 25, 50 for images, 25, 50 for making, you know, characters and films. Right. I mean, Where there's only so many successful companies. And that was my original point with OpenAI that sometimes we see only one big company come out. But, but I mean, I, I do think it's like a huge technological transformation, like we're saying. I mean, it's a case where you could see why generative AI large language models could be applied to a bunch of software as a service businesses. You know, it's like, okay, maybe you do make Figma plus AI. You know, it it doesn't seem as crazy to say, okay, we're going to try and compete um, with all these really valuable incumbent businesses. At the same time, I think, there's sort of this challenge of like, like Notion or uh, Quora, I think are both sort of unicorns that are pretty far along. I would put them in sort of almost like last era that are now trying to race into the generative AI space so they don't get disrupted. So their venture firms are going to have all these sort of old portfolio companies that Pivoting or are, are trying it, yeah. to dive in. And so I think there's a really big question of just whether, you know... Uh, whether sort of incumbents or sort of middle ground incumbents can can implement this technology or whether it reminds me of when cloud and mobile came out there right. were some folks who could make the jump from cloud and mobile if you look at yammer sax's company uh they didn't make the jump when they were at microsoft to mobile uh neither did HipChat, and then slack was mobile first and they right. won the day and then you look at you know uh mobile operating systems you know, and the impact that had on productivity software or cloud, and you right. know, you have people running away with it, and then can other people catch up in time? 
uh, and Microsoft Office is a fine mobile cloud operating system, but Google Docs, you know, has taken significant market share as well. So I'm curious what you think about this as an investor, if I'm allowed to ask a question. Yeah, you can ask the, me uh, questions anytime you want. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, obviously software multiples have collapsed, right? Yep. Um, but meanwhile, we're seeing these AI companies raise it, insane valuations, and it's hard to even know what the like fundamentals underpinning them are. I mean, I don't, I don't know. How, how do we reconcile that? And also, like, do you think, I guess one theory of the world, independent of the technology, is just there are all these funds with all this money, and they're eager for any story to be able to deploy capital. They're paid to deploy capital. We just yeah. saw, was it Founders Fund? I think they returned some money yeah, to investors, right? So well, they not even returned because they hadn't drawn the money down. Sure. They said, they just we'll said, push it to the next fund or whatever. Or yeah, we'll just, we'll make the size of this fund smaller because- right. The companies are not asking for more money. They're not right. asking for giant valuations. Therefore, we can be more efficient. So if I'm and who an knows, investor- Maybe some of their top LPs said, you know what? We're doing so poorly. <laughs> Do you think you might want to make this a little smaller so we don't have to make as many commitments because our public portfolios and some of our other portfolios with you are so down? So yeah, that could have been a back and forth discussion. My sense was they're, they're, they do well, but- um, They have the, an uh, all-in strategy- for right. whatever their top investment is. So it is super binary. I'm an LP in a couple of founder funds. Yeah. Um, and so without speaking about it, you know, um, insider information, Brian Singerman has always said, you know, we just want to figure out what is our high conviction bet that right. we have in that fund and put like a large percentage of the fund into that like right. they did with SpaceX. So I think they've been rewarded for, hey, make some bets, whichever one's the biggest, just plow a large percentage right. of the fund into that and then move on to the next fund. And they Which exited like some of their positions at the peak, whereas others like held on, I think. Um, they did sell some positions. That's right. Yeah. So, um, But my, my, my question was just this idea that investors are paid to deploy capital. They want an excuse to deploy capital. <laughs> and this is a good one. Like, do you, do you see that as a persuasive? Like, do you think there's... What I would like say if is, you have a fund, you yeah, so it's, you're getting close. You're close. And as a person who's outside, as a journalist, you're actually keying into something. It's not that they're paid to deploy and they need to put the money out there. They know they're going to find an investment. What they need is high quality investments that they think will return and allow them to raise their next fund. That's really what goes through everybody's uh, minds. And I'm raising my fourth fund right now and I'm doing it publicly and I'm taking a year to do it because I want to kind of democratize venture capital a bit. And has made me go back to launch fund one, launch fund two, which were like on paper 5x funds, and I got to turn that paper returns into realized returns. So I'm like right. in that mode as an investor. Now 5x is extraordinary. That puts you in like very elite uh, standings and but it's down from my Sequoia Scout performance. But right. I think now it's like really highlighted it for me. You know, I got to be really cutthroat about how I deploy capital. Every bet matters. Every follow on investment matters because things don't always go up and to the right, right? right? And I think that's what's going through people's minds is, oh man, if I deploy capital in 2021 and 2020, will I even get that money back? Will I be able to return 1x, right. maybe 2x, right? And stay in the game and get my next fund. Now, I think LPs are reasonable. They know there could be a vintage that performs better or worse by definition. So they'll, they'll stick with people who have multiple funds but yeah, people are looking for things to invest in. That doesn't mean they're going to make stupid bets, though. I think it's top of mind for people that entry price matters, right? Right. Uh, and so 
even though you're seeing all this like crazy stuff on the margins, the last like three, four, five investments we made and we're a seed fund, we're all at five to $15 million valuations. I think right. in 2021, they would have commanded two to five X that in terms of valuation. Were they generative they AI companies? Or? Well, one of them was, uh, but it was a previous founder who were just seeding, um, you know, with a kind of prototype, you know, hey, here's yeah. what we're thinking. And it's, you know, first money in, okay, figure it out. Go try and find product market fit. So those are high risk bets, but at lower amounts. And right. so I think that's the the strategy people are going to deploy. And you'll I see- I get what you're saying. The one thing I'd point out is yeah. like 2021 was an environment where you could be a talented investor by seeing where the momentum was, right? Your people were momentum investors. And so you could get, you could play this valuation game. It's like, this is a company that's going to raise at a higher valuation. Yeah. And with generative AI, there is a sense like you can get into the hot deal. You can be pretty confident that there will be yeah. more money afterwards to market. But remember what Bill Gurley always says, and I think he quoted it from somewhere else. You can't eat IRR. Right. You can't eat the statistic that we use, the, the rate of return. So you have to actually get that return. So I think a lot of neophyte investors were excited to do momentum investing in private right. markets, but never realized, wait, I have to exit. And there's right. no person to mark this up or sell my shares to in secondary. So therefore, what is this actually worth? And I think 2023, 2024, these companies go out to market to raise and they raise at lower valuations. And then those vintages, they thought they were... I had people who I invested in their funds and they're like, oh, we're at 3X. And I'm like, wait, I, I just signed up. They're like, yeah, we made four investments and they're all up in six months. And I'm like, so your fund is up your 3X on paper in one year. Right. Okay, that, that's what a fund does overall. So let's see the exits, right? Right. I, I mean, literally, if you were 3X after a year as you, on your first fund, the intelligent thing to do would be to sell everything immediately and lock in a 300% IRR right. for your career and have a 3x fund as your first fund. That would be the logical right. thing to do. Did anybody do, do that? See, some no. people, I think they're like homebrew, right? Did they sell out of some? You know, there, there are early funds that I think yeah. that, that do Most people held on. I, some of their winners. I, I did try to in 2021, you know, I, I didn't go out looking for secondary opportunities. But when secondary opportunities came in, I did take advantage of them. Yeah, uh, because I was like, why not lock in some wins here when we're up massively? Uh, and that was smart, because the first fund already returned its principal, it's, you know, already past that hurdle. And the second fund is out, I think like halfway there or 60% of the way there. And that's fantastic, right. too. So that's really the big lesson that's going to happen is what's life like? in a normal circumstance without the three years of craziness we saw. Right. Speaking of three years of craziness, the big news on Thursday, shares of Silicon Valley Bank have plummeted more than 60%. Bank went from trading at a $16 billion market cap yesterday to a $6 billion market cap today. Ouch. Uh, for context, SVB claims that nearly half of all US venture-backed tech and life science companies bank with them. I believe that to be true, actually. Uh, anecdotally, I see that. And on Wednesday, uh, their CEO, Greg Becker, wrote a letter to shareholders saying, quote, while VC deployment has tracked our expectations, client cash burn has remained elevated and increased further in February, resulting in lower deposits than forecasted. Okay, this is a bellwether quote. <laughs> so what right. this means is uh, VC deployment is tracking nicely. Uh, okay, they expected that, but the client means startups 
cash burn remained elevated and increased in February, which results in lower deposits. So they have people's bank accounts. What they're saying is startups are still spending too much money. Right. That anecdotally, I also think is correct. VCs are going slow. Founders are still burning cash too fast. Your thoughts? I mean, it's the, the, the SVB stock price is crazy. I mean, it really, like the debates about doc, whether we went through a dot-com type experience, obviously there are lots of differences, but the SVB stock price is definitely one that makes you, uh, like do the Pretty max shocking. version though. Yeah. Um, you hit max. Um, the, uh, yeah. It looks like Bitcoin. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, it is, I mean, I don't know. The, the market seems to know more than I do because that is a very sharp fall. I mean, there, yeah. Um, I think there are questions about sort of the value mm. of their holdings. Um, well, Reuters I mean, knows, so, uh, just right. to that point, that SVB sold 21 billion of its securities portfolio. CNBC noted that mostly consisted of US Treasury bonds. And the company estimated that the fire sale would result in a post tax loss of 1.8 billion. Essentially, the bank is reworking its balance sheet. And incurring a large loss from doing so to ups to offset that loss, SVB announced a plan to raise a $2.25 billion uh, round in a share sale, of which right. $500 million was already committed by General Atlantic, a venture firm, private equity firm, uh, a full stage fund. Uh, and right before I came on the call, I saw TechCrunch had published a story saying some, you know, investors are advising their startups like pull money from SVB. That obviously would you know, Ooh, run on the bank? Sort of bank run would be the nightmare situation. So even if nothing is really fundamentally wrong, I don't know either way, but you know, people can get scared and then that creates its own problems. So if people were to remove their cash from Silicon Valley Bank, that could be a problem. Or if they were, if they have a Silicon Valley Bank uh, debt facility, uh, a wise thing to do would be to pull that down. So you have it maybe if you had the option. And, you know, this is something that I have had a problem with in early stage startups, which is early stage startups would raise 3 million, 5 million, and then add a million and a half in venture debt. And then they would just tack it on to their spend. And they would be like, okay, well, I, I raised 5 million. Right. Now, 30% of that is venture debt. So 5 million, I'm going to burn, you know, 400,000 a month. So that means I have a year of runway. <laughs> uh, and it's like, nope. You have like nine, eight or nine months of runway, and now you're in debt for that last million and a half. Those last three mm -hmm. or four, those last four months, you're actually on the hook for. And people started using venture debt not for like building a factory or equipment and paying it back over some reasonable amount of time. They were using it to fund runway. It's normal operations, yeah. That's not a good idea, especially if you don't have product market fit or a stable revenue stream coming in. And I think that's also a potential problem here. Uh, for people who gave venture debt to, and, it, and Silicon Valley Bank wasn't the only one uh, giving venture debt. And I think the broader, the broader issue beyond Silicon Valley Bank is just that there are a lot of startups that raised hundreds of millions of dollars that haven't really felt the pain yet. Like we've seen lots of layoffs, but I, I still think the fallout for private companies is pretty slow. Like, you know, the public market reacts, you see it, the valuations fall, but the actual, we haven't seen sort of the bankruptcies that you might, right? And so I, yeah. I still think that there's a lot of potential pain ahead of us. And just 
And some of these companies we just won't hear much about anymore. You know, I think there will be companies that raise hundreds of millions of dollars that just sort of fade from the headlines. Um, I don't know. Do you just, is that too doom and gloom or? Um, you know, if you, um, so to your point, Eric, um, is it too much doom and gloom? There are some companies that raise that large amount of money without product market fit. Right. That is a challenge. That is a serious challenge. If they did have product market fit and there's a there there, in other words, they have 50 million in revenue, 30 million in revenue. Well, they could just lay people off until they get to break even or, you know, have infinite runway and they'll figure it out over time. And that will lead to some hand wringing amongst VCs on the board, but not the risk of a zero. And so that is the question for a lot of these companies is, okay, if you invested in the company at a billion dollars and they had, I don't know, 15 million in revenue and you overpaid, well, let's just say 10 million in revenue. So you paid 100x. You really should have paid 10x or 20x. It'd be 100, 200 million, 200 million dollar company, 20x, let's say it's high growth. You know, okay, then the company and the company's not growing. Now you got a problem because can it grow into the valuation or not? And how does it grow into the valuation? It just might be three, four, five years of what I'll call indigestion, to use a right. term, you know, like it just how do we get through this? Like it's, it's slogging, you know, like you got to right. march through a swamp. And so hopefully the people who are on those boards and who made those bets are willing to march through a swamp for <laughs> a year or two. Some right. of them might not even be there yet. I think some of the folks who are at some of these farms, you know, the TPG tigers of the world, I think some of them, you know, left some of those firms. So then it's you a good have time to retire if you, <laughs> you made all your money in 2021. Like or if you it, think that rates. fund can never return right. and get you carry, you might be like, okay, right. start a new firm. So I think some right. people did that. Some uh, more quotes came in uh, from uh, the Silicon Valley Bank CEO, New York based venture firm USV this week, uh, Unisquare Ventures, Fred Wilson sent an email to founders advising them. This is from the information who always likes to get credit or they <laughs> dunk on me on internal. This Oh, yeah, getting scoops is hard work. You know? I know. I always give them credit and then they just try to dunk on me in public. Um, I'm just going to like quote the insider, business insider rehash of <laughs> stolen reaggregation of this. New York-based venture firm, according to a business insider, New York-based venture firm, <laughs> the information, uh, USV this week sent an email to founders advising them to only keep minimal funds in cash accounts at SVB. That is funds up to 250K. SVB is in a severe cash crisis. The email read, do not accept any offers from SVB to keep your money there, even if they dangle 5% interest rates in front of you. It said, whoa. USV wow. noted it had reached out to many of its portfolio companies earlier this year, saying it had expected such a situation represented for the firm to decline to comment. Whoa. That's pretty intense. Some VCs, Bleak. yeah. So thoughts on Fred Wilson's position there? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I take anything that he says extremely seriously. So yeah. if he's warning people about this, you know, it's like, uh yeah that's that's risky i mean you know <laughs> svb uh clearly has like i said earlier has a strong incentive to tell everybody everything's everything's okay i don't want to be the one to you know i honestly i have no idea i mean it's very hard to model out you know these banks are so complicated that wasn't this what we went through i'm getting shades of the great financial crisis where people didn't have enough reserves or they're levered up and this concept of a bank run and everybody trying to clear out their money and we saw this with crypto as well. This is starting to give me flashbacks of that and maybe black swanish kind of event. Do we expect, you know, well known, well run banks to 
be insolvent or have bank runs. I, that's something I don't think we expected. And then that could result in the United States government having to come in like they did in the great financial crisis and bail out Silicon Valley Bank. I mean, is it really that acute? Well, uh, here it is. On yeah. Do you on, think they'd really bail us out? <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel like... After the last time, there's a lot of bad feelings because nobody right. on Wall Street went to jail, right? Right. And that, that was the kind of I'm, Bernie I'm Sanders position. I'm Silicon Valley would get a bailout. Um, I mean, yeah, I don't think so. Uh, okay, on the call, Becker told venture capitalists in Silicon Valley to stay calm. Calls started coming in. Calls started coming and started panic. He added that the bank has ample liquidity to support our clients with one exception. If everyone is telling each other SVB is in trouble, that would be a <laughs> challenge. I would right. ask everyone to stay calm and support us just like that we supported you during the challenging times. Okay, great. So he's saying don't take all your money out on mass. And then just the fact that we're even having this conversation on this podcast and Fred Wilson sent that email and the information is breaking the story. And he's saying, right. please don't do this. That then creates self fulfilling prophecy. I'm afraid as a bank, what you want is everybody to think you are the most reliable force in the world. I mean, you know, SVB has always been a little bolder than other banks where, you know, it's, it's deeply embedded with the technology industry and, and sort of helps, helps yeah. with some of the risk taking. Okay. All right, everybody. Uh, this has been a great hour with our friend, Eric Newcomer. He has uh, a newsletter, newcomer.co. Go sign up for it. Highly recommend it. Let's get him to 3,000 subs. Well done, Eric. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get him to 3,000 yeah. subs. Uh, and uh, congratulations on your chief of staff. I remember you were looking for that. It's made life a little yeah. bit easier. Congratulations on- Thank you. Not having thank to write link paid articles. Th and thank you, you know, for all your early support. I remember when I was just when, like Harvard Eric, and I was a young employee at the information. Uh, yes. You had Katie Benner and I on at one point. I, I was yeah. on a couple episodes. Um, yeah, you did great on the news roundtable. So I, I, I want to bring the news roundtable back a bit so we can have, uh, you know, the, I, I just like the problem with the news roundtable, if I'm being candid, was the tenor in a lot of the publications became so link baiting right. and so anti tech uh, or, you know, holding truth to power kind of that it became repetitively anti-tech as right. opposed to like what I want to do on the show, which is be insider, sophisticated, right. explain to founders and capital allocators what's happening in the world, talk about startups, talk about positive things happening, but not like being deranged in our, you know, effusive, totally. you know, love of tech, but just more intelligent than this person has too much money, they're too rich. This person you know, this company behaves badly, you know, it's like, okay, yes, that's part of the story. Yes, wealth creation and wealth disparity is a right. fine topic. It just can't be that the it can't be injected into every conversation about a new generative AI company. I, I agree that the media got too negative and crusady and yeah. that there were a lot of founder takedowns. But now I'm at the phase where like I'm over media criticism. Like that's sort of why I transitioned from dead cat to new yes. It's like Media criticism, like, okay, it's good every once in a while to like talk about the media, but it gets exhausting. Let's talk about like completely exhausting and just like, I feel like working the ref. There's a reason my position is there's a reason basketball players get fined if they talk about the refs. Like it's sometimes the ref's fault that people lose games and it sucks more than when the players make yep. mistakes. That's the media. It's like, it's really frustrating when the refs are bad. But if you let people, if people just like get to blame everything on the refs all the time, 
It's just like a distraction from the conversation. I think that's a derails good analysis. Describes. And you can't have refs who are in the bag and who are corrupt, right. Right. which we've seen totally. too. It's not doesn't happen too often, but I think this is where I think we're we're and I talked about this on the sort of uncomfortable rehash of Dead Cat when we try to make sense <laughs> of all this with journalists like I'm criticizing them, we're criticizing yeah. each other and it's right, like right. it was just a mess of a episode, but it's fine because it's <laughs> it is messy. I think it's all collapsing to then be reformed. And part of it collapsing is new publications like the information coming out and saying we're going subscription, you going subscription and being independent, uh, Casey going independent. This new breed, I think it's part of the rebuild process. So there'll be entertainment. And sadly, the New York Times and Business Insider are not that far off from each other in terms of they're going for clicks. And they're going for like a position. I, I don't know agree with your click prescription, but I don't want to fight that whole thing now. Well, whatever. I mean, it, the, my, my you would stance, agree that my, there's my advocacy for, journalism at the New York Times. Sure. Adv- yeah, but adv- the motivations for advocacy are totally different than clicks to me. But of um, course, yeah, I want I the, the creator world and the journalism world to have to just sort of accept to merge. You know what I mean? I think I like right that. now it's like yeah. we have journalists. We're held to high standards, and then we have creators who, you know, yep. are not held to different standards. And I feel like it all needs to come together. Everybody is judged mm-hmm. based on their reputation, and and yeah, yeah, I'm excited about that period. Fantastic. All right, listen. Speaking of reputations, go back to work and get more scoops and bring them here on this all week's right, service. Let's do. chop them up, Eric. Right, you are a you. gentleman and a scholar, looking good. Uh, congratulations on the success, uh, and um, we'll see you again soon. Bye-bye, all right, everybody. sounds good. See ya.